Americans brought democracy back from the precipice. Now what do we do to enhance democracy? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. Keeping democracy alive. We named this show well before the election of Donald Trump. And in that time, democracy itself has come under previously unimaginable attack from subtle and hidden voter suppression to actual attempts to simply overturn legitimate elections in state after state. And this attack wasn't from any foreign enemy. The very serious threats to democracy has come from the top of the Republican Party, the president himself. Sadly, as with all authoritarians, democracy is their enemy. But we are to believe that one-man rule is good for the nation. That's what they want us to believe. I don't buy it. I don't think you buy it either. In the last election, democracy was saved from near death. Now, what can we do to bolster it, to keep democracy strong? Our guest today is Kristen Eberhard, who is a proud policy wonk and member and member of Sightlines management team. She's the author of Becoming a Democracy, How Can We Fix the Electoral College, Gerrymandering, and Our Elections? Boy, that's a lot to put on a plate. She researches, writes about, and speaks about climate change policy and democracy reform. Before joining Sightline, Kristen worked at the National Resources Defense Council, a good bunch, leading its California climate work in San Francisco, then moving to Southern California uh, office to help the largest municipally owned utility in the country get off coal and onto energy efficiency and renewables. Yay. She has uh, taught courses on climate change and energy law at Stanford Law School and UCLA School of Law. Well, thanks very much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Kristen Eberhardt. Thank you very much for having me. Well, democracy is one of those words we just don't think about. It just is. When many Americans expressed concern about the state of democracy under Trump, we were laughed at. But of course, they say they said there was no threat to democracy. Ha ha. But let's start with a definition. What does the word democracy mean and how does it affect how government is to be directed and to function? A democracy means a form of government where the power flows from the people. So in contrast to a monarchy where the, the power flows from a king, um, or an autocracy where it flows from one person, a democracy means that the people ultimately are the ones who are um, in charge of what's happening with the government. That sounds like a good idea. There's a lot of problems with that. I remember in junior high school, we took courses called Problems in Democracy, but we all assumed way back then democracy was just our system and really wasn't under any threat. Now, there are a lot of organizations working to correct problems that have resulted from the threats to our democracy, from the corruption of our democracy. You're with an organization called Fixing Democracy First. What is that? And please tell us how it came to be and what its unique mission may be. Yeah, Fix Democracy First is a group based in Washington State, and um, their mission is uh their idea is that until we fix democracy, until we have a system of government that really is responsive to the people, it's hard to fix all the other things that we need to fix, like climate change and inequality and uh, poverty. So their idea is that we need to make sure we have fair elections, 
and that uh, government officials really reflect the people and not just big money or big corporations. Wow, what a concept. Real democracy. <laughs> now, it used to, I've been around this planet for a while. It used to be that well under 50% of us actually voted. And so uh, some people question the legitimacy of government, seeing how under 50% voted. But in 2020, the percentage was much higher. Any idea of what explains why it used to be so low and why it went up so much this year? Has perhaps COVID unintentionally helped to increase voting? Yeah, so I mean, in the United States election turnout really goes up and down. Um, you know, presidential elections usually do have about 50% or maybe a little bit more turnout, whereas off year congressional elections or, you know, local elections will have a much lower turnout, often only maybe 20% of people will vote in a primary yeah. or just a local election. Um, but yes, the, we had record turnout this year in 2020. And I think there's really two main things that happened. One is just it was a very um, high salience election. People were really focused on both sides of the aisle on what was happening with the election um, and feeling on both sides, they were very worried, you know, on the Democratic side, people were very worried about Trump's attacks on democracy. And on the Republican side, they were uh, very worried about a socialist takeover of the government. Sure. I know some people were. Um, so there's just a lot of interest and in that drove turnout. But the other big thing that happened that I, I that makes me hopeful is because of COVID, a lot of states made it easier to vote by mail. Um, and so you know, every state lets at least some people vote by mail always, but about 20 states made it really hard for anybody to vote by mail unless they had a particular excuse. And this year with COVID, a lot of states realized, hey, it, it might not be safe for people to show up and vote in person. It might not be safe for poll workers who tend to be older people to be um, standing in an indoor environment with a ton of people shuttling back and forth all day when we right. have this virus on the loose. And so they said, well, you know, maybe we should let more people try and vote from home. home. And so a lot of states improved their rules in the run-up to the um, November election to make it easier to vote by mail. And we had um, a record number of people voting by mail and voting early. So um, we had over 100 million people vote by mail and vote early, which that alone would be like a pretty average turnout. <laughs> but then on top of that, we had another 60 or so million people um, who voted in person. So you put those two things together, people being really interested and then people actually being allowed to vote in an easy and safe way, a way that you know we're all familiar with here in Oregon and Washington. And no doubt about it, Trump and his uh, enablers, they want fewer people to be voting. No question about that. They'd, they'd rather have nobody voting. And we'll talk about that as it goes along. But speaking of, you know, mail-in voting, I, I had long thought, my goodness, voting on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, that's a little limiting. Can't it be on weekends? You know, a lot of people can't make it to the post office. But now, with this mail-in stuff, I mean, to the voting place, but it's... It's like uh, an early voting. It's really increased access to democracy. And I, I think that's, I, I think once we've gone there, it, it'd be awfully hard to turn it back. You know, even Yeah, when... I hope so that, that, yeah, that people will see like, 
I, I think that people who have lived in Oregon or Washington or, or, or Utah or Colorado, where we always do every election completely by mail, huh. when you go to another state and say, oh, wait, my ballot doesn't get mailed to me. I can't just sit at my kitchen table and, you know, research things and think about it and talk to my kids about how democracy works. I've got to show up at a polling place on yes. a work day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, this is crazy. How, how does anybody live this way? So hopefully with 100 million Americans having seen that there is another way, um, there will be a lot of political pressure to, to keep those easy and safe options in place going forward. And, of course, that drives the Trumpists crazy. They can't stand that. Not that I'm politically biased or partisan or anything like that. But, uh, you know, you talk about the mail, and it was amazing to me that the blatancy with which Trump put a postmaster general in place specifically to mess with voting by mail over and over again. He decried voting by mail as being, you know, illegitimate. He he said, it amazed me, he complained that vote by mail forms were sent unsolicited. Of course they should be unsolicited, shouldn't they? I mean, they're problems. Yes, there are problems, the envelopes and the challengers about signatures. What about those and the idea of, you know, that, that they should be solicited first? So what about some of the problems that are there now? And people are, you know, because they vary state by state. The envelopes sometimes are a little bit confusing, and there are challenges about signatures. So what about those? Well, I, I just want to talk a little bit about that, the complaint that of unsolicited applications to vote by mail. I mean, that is kind of the minimum that a state can do to make it easy for people to vote. Because even in sending that form, you know, election officials have to send the form and then voters have to fill it out and mail it back in. And then election officials have to uh, transfer all the information from the form into their computer system, check the information, and then they've got to mail you a ballot. Well, the way that, that uh, a lot of states do it is they just make you fill out that form once and they don't make the election officials keep sending it out and keep filling it out and keep entering the information. And every time that form go changes hands, there's, you know, chances for just like plain old human error. Um, so in the states that say, look, if you want to vote by mail, you request a ballot once and then you can just be signed up to receive it by mail going forward. So Arizona and Montana, um, uh, Nevada, D.C. all have that uh, permanent option. We call it a single sign-up option. You just fill out the form once. And it not only is easier for voters because you just say, yeah, I want to get my ballot <laughs> um, just once. It's easier for election officials because they just verify your information once. And then they, they send it to you and they don't have to keep processing this paperwork. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes conservatives position themselves as the, the party of, you know, efficiency and, and um, not having bureaucracy. Well, this is an example where um, it would be more efficient to just let people fill it out once and, and go. Well, of course, the most efficient system is dictatorship. No questions asked there. <laughs> I mean, Mussolini made the trains run on time. That's the most efficient you can have. I mean, look at the whole Prussian uh, tradition, you know, of the Nazis and all that stuff. But we're not talking about that here. It, it is, the system as it's currently set up is impressively uh, uh, e efficient. And what about those problems that, that some people have cited with the envelopes being confusing and there are challenges about signatures. Like if somebody signs their name and it looks a little bit different 
that can be challenged as well. What about those? Is that just a, a red herring or is that stuff real? And is it being addressed state by state? Yeah, so every state has really different rules around this. And the states that do this best, um, they they have the voter sign the envelope so that they can check that signature against the signature on file to make sure it's the right person. Um, but uh, first of all, they, they make sure that they have a recent signature on file because people's signatures do change over time. Yes. So if you have a signature that's 20 years old and then you get this ballot with a signature and you say, you know what, this looks a little different. We're going to throw this vote out. Well, that's not fair. Right. It's the right person. Their signature just changed a little bit over time. So so the states that do it best make sure that they have multiple signatures, you know, examples and, and a recent one um, so that they can see, um, hey, you know what, this this is the right person. And then the other thing that they do is if it does look like there's something off with the signature, um, then they contact that voter and say, you know what, there was something off with your signature. Can you verify your identity so we can just make sure that this was you, this was your vote, and we can count your vote. And then that person has the chance to, um, you know, send in a new signature or send in a form or otherwise just verify that they are who they say they are. Mm -hmm. And then their vote counts. So it's a secure system and one that makes sure that voters are not getting unfairly disenfranchised. Wow, they certainly have been a lot in the past, the unfair disenfranchisement. Uh, you know, real 21st century Jim Crow kind of stuff is largely, uh, I believe, down south anyway, uh, focused on people of color. Yeah, yeah. And so what we see in contrast, you know, so that what I just described is sort of the best practices that mm -hmm. states like like Oregon and Colorado and Utah do. But in contrast, you see other states that have a system like North Carolina, where they require voters not just to sign their envelope, but to get a witness to sign their envelope. Right. Um, and especially in the time of COVID, this was um, yeah. not only unnecessary, but, but possibly dangerous to ask somebody. You have to go to a person, you know, have contact with them and ask them to, to put their name and address and signature on your envelope. That doesn't increase the security. You know, the idea is that this person is verifying your identity, but you know, if, if you're trying to cheat, I'm sure you can find an accomplice to, to cheat. So it doesn't really <laughs> increase the security and it makes it harder for people to vote. Um, and it makes it harder for legitimate voters to make sure that their vote is counted. So what we saw in North Carolina, of course, was that um, that witness requirement disproportionately affected black voters. Yes. So more black votes were getting thrown out than 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 ballots from white voters. Um, so it's a an unnecessary hurdle that has a racial impact. Oh, absolutely. There's been, I mean, you know, for 100 years or so, it's a tradition to do everything you can to keep black people from voting, to put all kinds of, you know, poll tax and terror, mm -hmm. whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's a long tradition, but that's more 20th century. 21st century has more sophisticated ways to uh, suppress the vote. And we've talked about uh, some of those just now. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we are talking about keeping democracy alive. Our guest is Kristen Eberhardt, who's written uh, Becoming a Democracy, How We Can Fix the Electoral College, Gerrymandering, and Our Elections. And one of the things that Trump loved to talk about is voter fraud. He has insisted over and over again, ah, oh, the election was rigged. 
I suspect that's because his background is that you never win by playing by the rules. You only win by cheating. It seems that he it's it's he that would prefer to have fraud rule us all and not actual democracy. What is the reality? How big a problem is voter fraud? Voter fraud, it's it's not zero. I can't say it never, ever happens, but it is so vanishingly small. You are more likely to get hit by lightning than commit <laughs> voter fraud. Um, literally, <laughs> that is wow. an actual statistic. Um, and yet it is the thing that for years Republicans have been using the fear of voter fraud to justify um burdens on voters um and then and and trump really ramped it up this year and using fraud as an excuse to try and stop people from voting by mail and now to try and stop uh election officials from counting uh actual legitimate votes from americans because um he's crying fraud with no evidence um so so i should say so there's kind of two types of, of voter fraud. So the one that, that that many conservative politicians have used to as an excuse to pass voter ID laws is the idea of in-person voter fraud. So the idea that that I might show up at the polls and say I'm you, you know, say I'm Bert and I'm gonna vote now on behalf of Bert. And so they say, well let me see an ID. And if I can't show an ID that says that I'm Bert, uh, then they won't let me vote. And that's the, you know, the justification for voter ID laws. Um, and then what Trump was complaining, you know, claiming here with with vote by mail seemed to be, although he didn't really say, he just said cheater, bad, mm-hmm. you know, dangerous. Um, but the, I think what he was trying to say was that maybe um, that somebody might get in your mailbox and get your ballot out and vote it for you. So there are so many ways to make sure to protect against this, that if, if Trump had been, instead of just claiming fraud, if he had actually been, you know, giving some federal money to states to implement these, you know, uh. security measures, then we, we could have had a, an extremely secure election and a president who was actually helping us get to that. So so maybe the easiest, cheapest thing that he could have done with federal money and he did not do is just ballot tracking. So um, some states have this comprehensive ballot tracking where they're tra- they have a unique barcode on the ballot and they track it from the time it gets printed to it gets mailed to it's in your mailbox oh. to you vote it, you put it back. And so it would be impossible for some, well, I mean, I can't say nothing's right. impossible, but, but it would be very difficult for somebody to steal your ballot out of the mailbox because you would have gotten a text saying your ballot's in your mailbox. And then when you went out to check your mailbox and the ballot wasn't there, you would have then texted back and said, sure. no, it's not. And then they would have put a flag on that ballot and um, sent you a new, you know, unique ballot and, and, and thrown out that ballot if it did, in fact, come in. So and this is, uh, you know, in the, in the greater scheme of how much things cost. In elections, right. This is incredibly cost effective. It could cost, you know, on the, uh, on the order of tens of thousands of dollars for a state to implement this uh, statewide. Mm. And then voters know exactly where your ballot is. Uh, election officials know because it also would fix, you know, there were some uh, delays, as you mentioned, with the post office, maybe purposeful oh, yeah. delays. Mm-hmm. And you would, you know, election officials would be able to see, hey, this whole lot of ballots 
was supposed to go out of this post office today and it didn't go out. Like, let's let's contact the post office to find out what's happening. Why are those ballots sitting there and not getting mailed out? They would have that level of detail. Um, so, yes. So if, if, if Trump had really actually cared mm-hmm. about fraud, right. he could have given every state $50,000 and they could have tracked every ballot and we would have known exactly what was happening everywhere. But why introduce 21st century technology when we have a 18th century system here? <laughs> like, that's, I hadn't heard of that. That's a, a remarkably good idea. Has it been done anywhere, the ballot tracking with the uh, barcodes? Yeah, yeah. So so um, there's uh, six states that do it statewide, and then there's about 15 more states that do it on a county by county. Basically, mm-hmm. a county can decide whether to pay. So I live in Multnomah County, Oregon, um, and I, I track my ballot by text, and it, it's wonderful. And young people came out, I think, to vote a lot this year. And I know, you know, in the, in the past, I, I've wondered, quite frankly, as a, a Bernie Sanders supporter, that uh, young people used to love to go to his rallies. But I wasn't sure how much they actually voted because it's not a lot of fun. Going to a rally is a lot of fun. But how, what was the, the turnout among young people? And I know, at least in this state, New Hampshire, there was a lot of effort put in by Republicans to, to tamp down student voting. Uh, and, you know, because they tend to vote Democrat. Uh, how did, do we know how young people did this year in 2020 in terms of turnout? Well, I, I don't actually know. And, you know, this yeah, is a weird recent. thing about the American system is we don't really know much for sure. We depend a lot on exit polls where we ask yeah. people, hi, did you just vote? How old are you? You know, right. et cetera. And um, this year, of course, with with most people voting earlier by mail, um, those exit polls were not as useful. And we don't, you know, most states don't keep that kind of data. So we don't really know for sure. Um, But we do know that that, for example, there were there were some things working against young voter turnout that um, because most colleges were closed. So the normal oh, sort of, yeah. you know, registration efforts that people do on college campuses to make sure that those 18 year olds are getting registered to vote, they couldn't do them this yeah. year because they weren't there. Um, but then on the other, on the flip side, um, people were, like I said, you know, really yeah. engaged. Yes. Um, so very determined. It's their future. And so, yeah. so many questions to ask about about uh, voting and democracy, how to make it more efficient and over uh, our current uh, first-past-the-post, winner-take-all voting system doesn't create a truly representative government. Elections are won by majorities. So what happens to the will of the minority? I mean, if it's a really close race, what happens to their will? Are they just shut out? Is democracy intended to work for everyone? And in that context, what about the idea of proportional representation? Yeah, so, you know, Almost every modern democracy uses some form of proportional representation. And that just means that um, candidates win in proportion to the support they have. So if 40 percent of voters want a Democrat and 20 percent want a Green Party candidate, then you're going to get 40 percent and 20 percent or you know, 20 percent want a socialist Democrat or 20 percent want a libertarian. Then that's what you'll get in your representation. And so then your um, lawmakers will actually represent what voters want. And then, you know, that the idea is that then they'll pass bills that voters want. Now, in contrast, what uh, 
former UK colonies <laughs> like the United States, uh, India, um, Canada, and uh, Australia mm -hmm. still use this first path. And we're the only democracies that still use this, our, our former colonies. And we use this first path, the post system, which ends up that you have two main parties that dominate and those parties get more seats than they should based on what voters actually want. And so you get everybody, you know, ends up with a Democrat or a Republican as their representative, even though a lot of voters want right. a, a Green Party or a socialist or a libertarian, they don't get it in our system. And then the, the result is that, that those voices, those policy ideas aren't part of the conversation um, that the legislators are having having because it's only Democrats and Republicans who are basically allowed in the room. Yeah, it's yeah, people with power and money like to keep it that way and uh, protect the power that they have. And if we had uh, some sort of proportional representation, uh, that would be harder to keep. So, of course, they work on making sure to keep it that way. But we are not powerless. And yeah. Yeah, and actually, the you know a, a great example here, New Zealand, which was another former colony, and it used yes. it did the voting system that we have up through the '90s, and it had the 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 disappointments that we have that there were two main parties, and the election results weren't really fair, um, and one party could win control of the government with a minority of votes, which is exactly what we have right now in the United States. One party is in control right now of all three branches of government, even though. They only have minority support amongst voters. Mm -hmm. So New Zealanders got sick of that. And they said, you know what? This isn't this isn't working for for us. And we're going to change it. And they had um, a national referendum. They actually created a national referendum process in order to do this. Like the United States, they didn't have a national referendum process. So they first created a national referendum process, and then they passed a referendum to change to a proportional system. And now they're doing great. Look, they have one of the best COVID responses in the world yes. uh, because they have a more responsive government. Yeah, I consider it New Zealand if Trump won again. But luckily, <laughs> we saved democracy <laughs> from the edge of the cliff. Now, the Supreme Court declared a while ago that money is speech. To me, the Citizens United ruling legitimized that one side that could afford it could use a bullhorn, basically, and drown out the speech of the other side so that uh, the tax policy favors the ultra-wealthy, uh, thanks to legislators, uh, you know, having their pressure on them, the machinery of government, the way we conduct democracy and implement existing law is bent to favor those who are already the most powerful among us. Money has always had power relative to democracy, always. Can there be democracy where there is great wealth on the part of the few? Or how much of a threat to democracy is that? We seem to be, you know, really in a new uh, gilded age, if not worse than the original. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is, you know, an important role of government is to make sure that not too much power accumulates in just a few hands to make sure that the people um, still have a say in in how how the country works and how the economy works. And yes, Citizen United was a huge blow against um, regular people continuing to have uh, some say. Uh, so one of the solutions in my book um, you know, that th my book is about solutions that we can do right now without a constitutional amendment and without a Supreme Court change. And so it, it, you know, it just takes as a starting point, like, 
we're not going to change Citizens United right away. You know, right. hopefully we will over time, but that's, that's not going to happen immediately. Right. But something we can do immediately is try and at least give regular people as big of a bullhorn as corporations have. And the way that you can do that is um, through this innovative program that the city of Seattle um, implemented several years ago called Democracy Vouchers. So every voter gets $100 worth of vouchers, and then they can give that, it, it becomes real money if they give it to a candidate who has opted in. And opting in means you don't take big money. So you don't take any check over $500. And um, so basically, you're not beholden to corporations, you're not beholden to, to really wealthy donors. All of your donors are, are small. Mm. And then, you know, so if you opt in, you promise you're not going to take any checks, and you're going to you know open up your books to regulators to, to prove that you haven't. Mm -hmm. Now you can go to a town hall meeting, and if you win over a bunch of people, they can reach in their wallet and take out this democracy voucher and hand it to you so they don't have to have money to spare. They, they could be on a oh, wow. tight budget with mm. no money to spare, but they give it to you, and it becomes a real $100 for your campaign. And what state um, is so that? So what we've seen, this is in Seattle, Washington. Uh, in Seattle, hmm. And so what we've seen in Seattle is that it really changes the game that people who otherwise might not be able to run because they're not, you know, they don't have a bunch of friends yeah. <laughs> who are big corporate donors. And so normally they just wouldn't even be able to run a campaign. Right. All of a sudden they can run because wow. they've got enough friends who are willing to give them $100 of, of democracy vouchers. So it changes who can run. Um, it changes how they run their campaign because now they're out reaching out to a bunch of, of, of regular people. Um, wow. instead of just spending all their time phone banking with, with rich people. Um, and then it, it changes also like who participates. So what we saw was a, you know, we went from just hundreds of people being donors in the city of Seattle, you know, just the, mm -hmm. the elitist of the elite to tens of thousands of people becoming donors. Wow. And so now they feel like they're part of the system. They feel like they have influence. They feel like they matter to candidates. Candidates are seeking them out and talking to them. Um, so it really changes just the whole dynamics of how um, of campaigns work. And uh, Seattle adopted it. Other cities are looking at adopting it, but you know, we, we hope that this is a solution that could, could spread. What a great idea. I've often wondered too about... Uh... Uh, not just supply side controls, but demand side controls. In other words, I, I know that some countries, each party, and there's actually countries that have more than two parties, really, <laughs> and the, each party gets a certain amount of airtime for free to do with whatever they mm -hmm. want, no more and no less. I, that, maybe that's something that can be looked at as well. I don't know, but yeah, that's a fabulous idea you were just talking about there, and, and it works, and uh, hopefully people can uh, replicate it in other states. And I was going to, you know, the, the the federal government can do things, but states, as you say, can act on their own to enhance the functioning of democracy. What else has been done or, or could be done at the state level? It's probably quite a bit. Yeah, it's actually, you know, the way our federal system is set up, states have a lot of power, which is, you know, good news and bad news. They have power to suppress voters, but they also have <laughs> power to... Uh, to, to implement solutions. So, um, you know, in, in terms of voting rights, um, a bunch of states have now implemented automatic voter registration. Wow. So if you are an eligible voter and you interact with a state agency, you know, mostly that's uh, DMV. Right. 
um, they will automatically register you to vote. Or if you change addresses, you know, and you, you submit a change of address form, they'll automatically update your address to make sure mm-hmm. that you, that they have the most recent information for you. So it means that, that, uh, you know, voters, if you're an eligible voter, you're all, you get on the rolls. And wow. now what you need to do is show up and vote. Mm-hmm. Cause right now we have this two step system. You have to jump through two hoops, right? Yes, like yes. you have to get yourself on the rolls in time which means in, in many states, if you show up to vote, you can't get on the rolls right, then. Right. Like you're out of luck. You right. needed to do it a month ago. Right. Um, and then you got to show up and vote. So in, in these 16 states that have automatic voter registration, um, they've they've taken away you know that, that hurdle. And, and also there's benefits to the state that they have more accurate voting rolls um, because they're taking a proactive role in making sure that voters are on the rolls and that their information is up to date. Um, so that's the thing that every state should do. It's it's um, cost effective to implement, and it's 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 better for the agencies implementing, and is better for the voters. Um, another just like no brainer is um, joining what's called the Electronic Registration Information Center, mm. which is a, a service that helps uh, states keep their voting rolls accurate. So it's, uh, you know, notifies the state if voters are, you know, registered in more than one county, you know, maybe they moved and forgot to um, to submit a change of address form. And so it tells them, hey, this this voter needs to update, you know, to their most recent county. Um, it tells them if voters have died, you know, to take them off the rolls. And so it just keeps the voting rolls very clean and up to date, um, which is, again, better for Everyone in 30 states are members of that, but the other 20 need to join. Mm. I can't imagine where the uh, lines would be in which states are not part of it and which states are, but that's my own prejudice, I suppose. Yeah, well, the, you know, the, actually, the really interesting thing about this, the, the Electronic Registration Information Center, it's actually a very bipartisan. Um, you know, you, wow. it's, it's not as obvious where the lines are. You know, for example, Texas, which is otherwise terrible on mm-hmm. voting rights, mm-hmm. is a member in California, which is otherwise good on voting rights, is not a member. So at the moment, at least, um, there's there's plenty of equal opportunity for states to, to get with the program and, and get a 21st century system. Sounds good. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Democracy Alive. We're talking about keeping democracy alive. And it does seem to be a greatly improved interest in keeping democracy alive in 2020. Uh, People are recognizing, hey, this is a good thing. Our guest today is Kristen Eberhardt, who has written a book, Becoming a Democracy, How, How We Can Fix the Electoral College, Gerrymandering, and Our Elections. Well, let's get to gerrymandering. Redistricting happens every 10 years. So the elections of 2022 will use new maps. The line drawers have more power than voters. The, and nationally, even though Democrats tend to get more votes, Republicans, through redistricting, gerrymandering, have maintained power. So talk, please, about gerrymandering, why people don't pay more attention to this, why and how it can be changed. Yeah, so gerrymandering is one of those things that I think when people hear about it, they're really outraged. Yes. And so the idea is that Politicians can look at the maps and sort of see, um, you know, this neighborhood tends to lean Democrat, this neighborhood tends to lean Republican, and they draw the lines in such a way 
that their party can win more seats than they won votes. You know, so say uh-huh. you look at a map where where um, 49 percent of people are voting for the Republicans and then you draw the lines in such a way that the Republicans win, you know, 55 or 60 percent of the seats. And so what you end up with is a state legislature, which is um, leaning Republican, even though the voters of right. that state were leaning Democrat. Mm-hmm. So it's very unfair. Oh, yeah. um, um, I think the thing that 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 is a little less well known is that even when the you know the, the line drawers are not uh, trying to do that, you know, even when you have like an independent right. commission that that's not partisan, mm-hmm. there is still a bias towards Republicans. Yeah. And the reason is that um, you know we in the modern era, Democrats tend to live in cities. Um, and that's because, you know, there's sort of people who are more open minded, want to have exposure to different cultures, um, you know, want to live in a, a denser, you know, are, are happy to live in an apartment and not have a, um, you know, a big lawn. Yeah. Um, they tend to move to cities and they tend to vote Democrat. Yeah. So the cities are voting, you know, 70, 80 percent Democrat. And then the suburbs are very evenly split. And so if you draw a district that's very compact, maybe you'll draw one district that's the city and then a couple of districts that are suburbs. And so in that city, you get one representative who's a Democrat, but he got, you know, 60,000 votes. And then you have a bunch of suburbs where they barely, you know, the, the Republicans sort of barely won. So in each of those, maybe he got, you know, 40,000 votes, um, but there's more of those very evenly split districts. And so basically the Democrats are wasting their votes in these dense mm. urban districts. Um, so uh, independent redistricting is definitely an improvement. It means that you at least can't have you know, purposeful <laughs> uh, making the lines unfair, but it doesn't completely fix the problem that it's just not fair uh, for there to be one person who represents you know, 70% of the voters in the district and then somebody else who only represents 51% of the voters in their district, but they both go to the legislature with equal power. Um, So the solution is to do what most democracies do, which is some form of multi-winner districts with a proportional voting method. So the Mm. idea is you take that city, you know, where you had like this one really dense urban district and a bunch of suburban districts and you make it one five winner district, you know, so instead of having one urban district and four suburban districts, you just have one five winner district. And then voters can, for example, rank their choices. And then the top five from that larger area will go to the legislature. And what happens Mm. then is of those five candidates, if in that area you you had, say, 20 percent of your voters who wanted a socialist and 20 percent of your voters who wanted a um, libertarian, and um, 20% of your voters are one of the Green Party. All of a sudden, instead of being, you know, one Democrat and four Republicans, you'll have a much more representative group of mm. lawmakers. You might have one Democrat, one Republican, one Libertarian, one Green Party, you know, whatever it is that the voters in that district um, wanted. So voters get more choice. The lines don't pick the candidates. You know, the the voters pick the candidates and you end up with more parties. 
Is that these are good ideas, and and I find usually good ideas tend to go nowhere uh, if they're good ideas. <laughs> but uh, I used to say when I was in, uh, in the state house in Concord, if it's a, a good, sound, common sense idea, it'll never happen in the state house. Uh, <laughs> but is this being pushed? What you were just talking about here, is there an effort? Yeah. Who, who's who's doing that and what are they doing? Yeah, so there is a, a federal bill that would do this ah. for Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has uh, it has a, a, a several co-sponsors and the main organization pushing for it is called Fair Vote. Uh-huh. I like that. Um, and then there's some, you know, and then there's some local efforts. I mean, so Cambridge, Massachusetts uses this way of voting for their city council and um, Uh, school board. uh Um, And then it just passed. There was actually a ballot initiative in the city of Albany, um, California. They just passed a ballot initiative to, to elect their city council in this way. Um, So it's definitely, you know, it's, it's not about to happen tomorrow, but there, there is, um, there is a movement. Yeah, there is. And uh, it's, it's good to hear that people are doing it. And, Democracy requires, A, people to participate, and B, persistence and a little bit of patience. A lot of people are not patient. You know, we're Americans, consumers. We want it right now. But it doesn't work that way in a democracy. One of the things, of course, that people are really concerned about is the Electoral College. A couple of different aspects Mm. about that. Hillary won the popular vote by about 3 million in 2016. But like five others who won the popular vote... She did not become president because she failed to win the Electoral College. What was the original intent of the Electoral College? How can it be changed? Do we need to do away with it? And what what might the process be on that? Yeah. So, you know, if you look back at the discussions at the Philadelphia Convention, um, they were a little bit stumped about how to elect the president. They They talked about having a national popular vote, but they just didn't think it would work because at that time, you know, there was no television, no phone, no internet, no telegraph. Um, and it took about three weeks to travel um, from one end of the colonies to the other. And then also the colonies really thought of themselves, you know, they didn't, they weren't a country yet, no, right? They, right. They, each of them, you know, they were Georgia or they were right. North Carolina, they weren't the United States. And so the founders thought, it would be too hard to campaign across all of these colonies and that each colony would really just vote, you know, they'd each put up a candidate and then the the voters in each colony would just vote for the candidate from that colony. And then you'd end up with a 13 way race and no way to um, uh, sort of figure out who was the right winner. So, so they said, okay, well, you know, voters just, you know, they, they won't be able to get to know candidates from other colonies. So we need to have this intermediary body of people who do know. So they uh-huh. said the Electoral College was supposed to be people who had worked in politics or, you know, who just knew the candidates from the different colonies and could really have a um, an informed view of who is this person, uh-huh. what kind of a job would they do as president you know are they really the best most qualified person for the job so the uh, you know the original idea was basically it was kind of like an interview panel uh, <laughs> who, who was who were supposed to be um you know discerning people who would pick the best president for the country now that it has never worked that way <laughs> um i mean and you and when you hear that you think 
that doesn't sound like a terrible idea, you know, having people who have actually worked with the you know, what if you had people who had actually worked with Trump <laughs> and had actually worked with Biden and were supposed to say, who's the best president for <laughs> this country, right? Like, oh, okay, that, that's not such a terrible idea. But it it didn't ever work that way. And things quickly broke down into parties and then the, the electors just voted for their party. Right. So how can that, does it need to be done away with? I mean, there's a perception that a strictly popular vote would mean that the population centers of New York and California would choose the president and that the two coasts would have all the power and the flyover states in middle America, the ones that were angry that they were ignored in the past. What about that? I mean, should it should the Electoral College be done away with or... I'm guessing it's there's as H.O. Mencken said, there's always a to every complex problem, there's a simple solution and it's wrong. I have a feeling <laughs> I have a feeling that this is it's not so simple that maybe just doing away with it may not be the best uh, choice. You've looked into this quite a bit. What's what's your sense on that? Yeah, so first I want to talk a little bit about this perception that somehow with a popular vote you know, California and New York would control the election. This seems so backwards to me because the thing is right now, California um, has 5 million people in California voted for Trump. 5 million, you know, that's a lot more than than the number that voted for him in Georgia. And so, but because we have this system where each state, almost every state has chosen to give all of its electoral votes to one candidate. And they do not have to do that. That is not in the Constitution. That's not how they did it to begin with. They've all just over time chosen to do it that way. But because they do, all of California's 55 electoral votes go to one candidate, even though millions of people Mm. chose a different candidate. So with a national popular vote, all of a sudden, you know, there could be millions of votes up for grabs in California. that a Republican candidate could go there and campaign and try and mm. get some votes, and those votes would matter. Whereas right yes. now they don't. Yes. Cal- he's not going to get California's electoral votes. So, right. so that's you know, if you're talking about making votes matter, <laughs> um, you know, California and New York don't have enough people to swing the whole election, and they don't vote monolithically. And I think right. that you know, seeing this electoral college map has really warped our brains to think that whole swath of the west coast is all democrat because you see that blue map you see washington oregon and of course um it's not (laughs) at all there's millions and millions of people voting republican but we just see that map that shows it as blue and i think that a national popular vote would start to rewire our brains to realize you know what? Places are diverse. <laughs> there's there's voters of all stripes everywhere. States aren't just one color or the other. There's a lot of different people within each state and presidents could go and try and get those those votes. So that is my um, pitch yeah. for that. And then I think the other thing I've heard similarly is that cities would, you know, control right. everything. And again, this is kind of weird. Like there's not actually that many people who live in cities. If you look at every city in the country, it's only about a quarter of people who live there. So even if every single city, you know, like a hundred percent of them voted Democrat and then every other place 
people voted Republican, it, the Democrat can't win. They're, they're going to have to win over voters in other places. Cities just aren't, there's just not enough of them. So perhaps just going to a popular vote ain't a bad idea after all. I, 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 <laughs> some good explanation there. Now, of course, one of the other things is ranked choice voting. It's a new up-and-coming thing. What is ranked choice voting? How does it work? Is it a good solution? What problems does it solve? Tell us about ranked choice voting. Yeah, so ranked choice voting, and you know, space for, for a voter, it just looks like you get your ballot, and instead of just filling in one bubble, um, you can rank the candidates in order of preference. So if you only like one candidate, you just you know put a one next to their name and you're done. Um, but if you like more than one, then you rank them. You say, you know, this is my first choice, this is my second choice, this is my third choice. Um, and what that does, and uh, so I should clarify, I think it's important to know there's single winner ranked choice voting and multi-winner ranked choice voting. So we were just talking with gerrymandering about mm -hmm. the need for a multi-winner district. So you can use ranked choice voting in that kind of a uh -huh. multi-winner situation to take the top five, or you could use it in a you know a presidential race, for example, where there's just one winner, there's just one president, um, and you rank and you come out with the top one. Um, so it's the same. The ballot looks the same, but you know the results can be different depending on whether you're electing one president or you know one governor, or one mayor or if you're electing a slate of legislators. Um, so that said, ranked choice voting is gaining momentum. Yes. The state of Maine yes. used ranked choice voting for all of their um, statewide and congressional races. The state of Alaska just voted. Um, the, the voters said, we want to use ranked choice voting for our statewide elections going forward. Um, a bunch of cities, you know, there, there's about a dozen cities that have already been doing ranked choice voting and six more adopted it this year. Um, so it's, uh, it's definitely gaining some popularity. Yeah, it does seem to be. People like democracy. Imagine that. I think <laughs> I think more so than ever. And there are so many issues that are kind of swept under the rug because they're not, uh, you know, they don't grab the media attention, but they're big issues. Like, of course, global warming. That's got some attention to it. But there's also mass incarceration, access to health care, uh, our old freedoms of religion, speech, and the press. The tool of democracy has been pretty well kept from these issues, I think. How how can it be made to change? I mean, mass incarceration, again, no, people don't look at that, but it's huge. It's a terrible problem. How can democracy be used as a tool uh, in the future to help address that? Well, so, I mean, I think there's a, there's a kind of a two sides of this or, you know, a feedback loop maybe where we have... Um, taken away voting rights from people with a felony conviction so then they don't have right. a voice right. in democracy and then you know and then we continue with uh, some very bad criminal justice policies right. um so there's there's that and that's one of the things in my book is restoring rights voting rights for people with felony convictions but then i think on the other side I actually i actually see reason for hope with there have been recently some bipartisan efforts to reform some of our criminal justice system. I think there's been kind of a recognition on both sides of the aisle that mm -hmm. um, this was, uh, a bad this, was this is not, this is not working. This was not well thought through and we need to stop. Um, and I think that there, I've actually, that's, you know, kind of one of the bright spots for me. I've seen some 
um, progress being made on that issue. Oh, and there's so many issues. I think it's, it's starting to happen. And public education, I, I think, I'm not sure, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who declared that an educated citizenry is essential for a functioning democracy. And as we talked about, you know, the Electoral College, oh, they know, trust the experts. It's not the, you know, the peasants, the people. You know, it's, it's a little dangerous to have the average person uh, really participating in a democracy. So Republicans... Uh, you know, if they're not educated, if they don't know what the heck they're voting for. I mean, but Republicans have for some 40 years cut funding for public schools. And as Trump has said openly, he loves the uneducated. They're much more easily led around, led astray, voting against their own interests again and again. What about the role of public education in democracy? Are people getting that? I think that there's, you know, what we're really seeing in the last few years is a huge threat to democracy is when people don't have good information or they don't right. know what information to trust and that that played a big role right. in in 2016 and this year um that we have this you know internet which can bring people lots of information but then it can also bring them untrustworthy information and they don't know uh what yeah, right. to trust right and and you can't have a democracy when you know different people are operating on different basic set of facts <laughs> about what's actually happening in the world. You know, you, you you have to agree on sort of the basic facts, and then you can have different opinions on what to do about those facts. You know, so you might say, "Hey, yes, we all agree that uh, you know one in thirteen black men are in prison." Um, yeah, it's a fact. So, not, you know, we're, we're all that, that we all know that now, you know, what we should do about that. Well, some of us right. think that that's not right. And some of us think it is, you know, fine. But when you can't even agree on that, you know, when people say, oh, no, that's that's fake news. It's actually only one in 20 or, you know, whatever. Uh -huh, that, you know. Uh -huh, sure. Um, then then how can you even move forward with any kind of um, discussion about what should be happening in our democracy? And I think. That's the thing that is hardest is yes. you know, how can we um, reform the media environment and then also make sure that, yeah, our public education system helps people know how to find good information that they can trust. And, of course, the Internet is you know, pro-democracy and anti-democracy at the same yeah. time. It's, yeah. I mean, who knows what's real? The stuff they made up about uh, all Democrats being child abusers. Some people actually right. believe that. It was bizarre. Right. But, right. it, so what- Or even like right now with, you know, COVID. So we we have a vaccine, which is a huge triumph of technology that, yes. you know, and, and our, 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 our science and technology system that we got a vaccine in less than a year. Um, but now we have this sort of information challenge of um, people saying they won't take the vaccine because they don't trust it. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a history of, of black people being used as guinea pigs for uh, vaccines that yeah. actually did some horrible things. So I can see a little bit of doubt there. What, what people, well, quickly, what forces are there at work on Capitol Hill that would put stumbling blocks before expanded voting rights? So they're organized, uh, uh, campaigns or power groups? Well, you know, I think a lot of that is actually operating more at the state level. Uh -huh. And I feel, uh, well, 
<laughs> I don't want to be too naive, but I have a little bit of hope that this election might change the conversation around voter suppression a little bit because it was a very high turnout election, um, undeniably, and it was not bad <laughs> for Republicans. I mean, you know, they, they lost the presidency, but yeah. they picked up a lot of seats in the House. They may, you know, at worst, they're going to be tied in the Senate. And so, you know, I think there's been an assumption, maybe on both sides for many years, that more voters is is good for Democrats Uh and bad for Republicans. And Uh so Republicans have been responding to that, what they understand as the basic truth and saying, okay, well, then we need to have less people able to vote because that's what's good for us. So maybe this makes them reconsider that position and say, you know what? Um, maybe more voters isn't so bad for us. We just need to, you know, convince those voters to vote for us. And we should put our efforts into winning over voters, not into stopping them from voting as we have. Oh, my goodness. So what can people do? I always like to give people some things they can do here to to help. And what's your... Yeah, so, uh, so so my book... Yeah. Um, which you can find at becomingademocracy.com. So it has uh, 10 solutions, many of which we've talked about today. And at the end of each chapter, um, there's a, a list of organizations uh-huh. who are working on making this solution a reality. And so you, and they're organizations that take, you know, volunteers that, that are organizing in communities across the country. And so you can get oh, in touch with them. And then at the end of each chapter, there's also a set of discussion questions. And what I'm, hoping is that people will you know get this book and bring it to their book club or to their uh-huh. you know family reunion and get people talking and then once people start talking about these solutions then they'll say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna contact this group and get involved in making this a reality so my recommendation is get the book find the the chapter that interests you most you know there's you know so there's a chapter on ranked choice voting there's a chapter on the um, electoral college. So whichever it was that gets your blood flowing, yeah. go to that chapter, um, discuss it with your friends and family and get involved. And the website becomingademocracy.com, is that right? Yep. Becomingademocracy.com. And, and the book is published by who? Uh, it is published by Book Baby. Book Baby. Nice. Thank you so much. And uh, boy, it's, I, I, I like the sense of optimism that uh, democracy is is on the rise. Wow, great stuff. Thank you so much for being with us, Kristen Eberhardt, on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Kristen. Okay, thank you so much. It's coming through a hole in the air From those nights in Tiananmen Square It's coming from the feel that this ain't exactly real Or it's real, but it ain't exactly disorder from the sirens night and day from the fires of the homeless from the ashes of the gay democracy is coming to the usa